Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to the Love Tennis Podcast with me, James Gray, George Belshaw and Calvin Bethon. Thank you very much for returning. As I know many of you are, we're, we're delighted that we're so many new listeners over the last couple of weeks. The Emma Raducanu boom is well and truly uh, alive. We'll be talking, of course, about her first appearance since winning the US Open. It was brief. Uh, I know a number of journalists flew out to Indian Wells pretty much just to for that match, which Feels like quite an expensive pound per point ratio, but uh, we'll get into that later. Uh, we'll talk about Andy Murray as well, who's saving the trip for a few of them. He's picked up a couple of wins. Um, some chat about Nick Kyrgios. We'll be following up on the Alexander Zverev story for what there is to follow up from last week. Uh, we'll also be discussing a bizarre interview with Riley Apelka, tennis's favourite serve bot, uh, and a little bit from Calvin out in Prague, although I'm reliably informed that he's back in sunny Barnsley this week. Uh, there is only one place to start, though, of course. It's the desert, it's Palm Springs, it's Indian Wells, Emirata Khanu. I mean, we, we talked a lot, uh, or at least uh, some, and I know there was huge interest online as to where her kind of return to competitive action would be. She had spanked the Duchess of Cambridge, love and one, I'm reliably informed, uh, at her homecoming at the NTC and was now looking for some more serious opponents. She went to Indian Wells. She started, she was seeded, of course, by virtue of her new world ranking. She she cruised through her bye in the first round in consummate style, uh, and then ran into Aleksandra Sasnovich of Belarus. She was the world number 100 uh, when she met Radicano on court and promptly beat her in straight sets. Uh, George, I know that Sasnovich has gone on to beat Halep, so it's not you know, as bad a result as, as maybe you might think. But w- what do we make of the kind of performance, the, the conditions that she found herself in and, and the reaction to it? I think the alarm bells would probably have been ringing when she uh, dropped a game to Kate Middleton, to be honest. I mean, <laughs> um, no, I mean, look, it's, it's always very easy to suddenly sound the alarm and start panicking when 
someone's just cruised through qualifying, won the US Open, not dropped a set, and suddenly the, the narrative is she's the best thing since sliced bread and she's going to go and dominate the world. Um, and I think this was a good reality check to remind you that tennis is a very rarely like that um it's it's a really difficult sport it's tough to get yourself up for events like i think there's been so many grand slam champions recently who will then go out and struggle in the next event um particularly first time ones. so this is nothing particularly new but i mean she's still not won like a match on the wta tour proper um so i, I think we do <laughs> It does just have to be this sense of perspective. And uh, I saw Calvin rant a bit about this this week, but I have to say, I saw a remarkable number of people to nick his kind of phrase saying, oh, there's nothing to worry about with Raducanu. Can we all just be nice to her and not get on top of her? Uh, I don't think I saw a single comment going after her. I mean, who in their right mind is going to suddenly start <laughs> slamming Raducanu? But, yeah. Well, I think there's been a very popular kind of, oh, she's not that good, she's won one tournament, kind of, you know, the, the sort of inevitable blowback to any massive hype story is, and I've had lots of people in my mentions on Twitter um, saying, oh, you know, she, she's overhyped, she's she's just not going to be the best player ever. And yeah, in, in fairness, that's kind of how tennis works and how news works is the recency bias is incredibly strong and of course, we're going to be more excited about her because she's young and she's British. And I think it's inevitably there are some people out there going, I told you she wasn't that good. And, you know, you just kind of have to take the rough with the smooth and, and bounce with it. Calvin, I, I don't suppose you were particularly surprised when, when it turns out that she's not Serena Williams 2.0. Uh, no, because um, women's tennis is chaos, as I keep saying. <laughs> There's no, you know, I'm, I'm obviously half joking with that, but for the last, two years, three years maybe, four years even, there's been no kind of rhythm and cadence to the women's tour at all. So other than Naomi Osaka tends to win about one in four slams somewhere along the line, and Ash Barty is quite consistent-ish. But other than that, there's nothing that you could go on. So it wouldn't surprise me if she played, if Raducanu plays next week and lost first round, and it wouldn't surprise me if she wins the tournament without losing a set. Um, there's nothing to go on. Yeah, there's an interesting piece um, I read before her match this week in the Telegraph um, that Simon Briggs kind of did about the, kind of, I think it was, the, I can't remember if it was six or seven, but the, it was like the six or seven things Raducanu needs to do to become like the superstar of women's tennis. It was something along those lines. Um, but, but the bit I found most interesting kind of reading before this match um, was actually an account from Naomi Brody about, how tough it is going to Indian Wells and how it'd been one of the tournaments she'd always found the kind of hardest and the toughest to acclimatise. And she was kind of saying this was pre the match. So it was quite insightful from her, I suppose, uh, before the event happened that, you know, actually she thought Raducanu would not necessarily struggle, but find it very difficult to kind of adapt to all these different places on tour. And it wouldn't be, you know, if you're not used to the rigours of going on tour and you're not used to how the courts play and whatever, it can be a real real challenge um so yeah I, th I thought that was quite interesting with Indian Wells and I, I know Murray hasn't done particularly well there over the years it's always been a bit of a problem place for him um when you consider how good he has been on hard courts typically but yeah it's let's not forget as well that this is not the time of year that ordinarily we go to Indian Wells yeah, um usually we're there in the spring it's about sort of late 20s it's warm 
I think everyone acknowledges that, but it is actually much hotter, I understand, right now in, in that part of the world than, than it usually is when we play there. So, like, don't underestimate the, the heat. Um, Medvedev was also talking about the courts themselves. Um, he used lots of different adjectives that all sort of contradicted each other. He said it's fast, but also quite slow. And I don't really know what he was trying to say. I think he was trying to say that it's fast through the air and maybe slow bouncing. But Calvin, you may be able to give a, a more... Yeah, that, that's just what I was going to say. I think because it's at altitude, they're the worst type of altitude courts when it moves fast through the air. Because it's, it's also altitude and it's hot and it's dry heat mm-hmm. as well. And then... I think the problem is with outdoor courts is that, especially at these tournaments, and I don't know why they do this, because there's no real need to. They they relay them every time there's a tournament that's about to start. And when you relay them, it's naturally um, faster, uh, slower, sorry, because of the sand that's in the court. And over time, with running on it, with hitting balls on it, the t- sand tends to wear down, so it, it smooths the surface out. But there's this big thing, and like, a tennis court will last, a hard tennis court will last fifth maybe not that long maybe 10 years um if you're playing in a club even more i mean clubs that i've coached uh, i've had the same hard court down for 15 20 25 years and they're, they're fast now but they're not unplayable by any stretch but these tournaments they they relay the court brand new every time there's a tournament so it's once a year and that's why we keep getting these really slow courts everywhere Hmm. So it seems like a like I mean it would be good to talk to maybe and maybe something we can do in the off season is talk to the tournament director about it because it seems financially like surely the, the easiest thing to do financially is not to relay the court every year. I mean I don't know whether upkeep is more expensive. The only thing I'll say on it and I think this I, I'm speculating I don't know whether this is the reason what what one of the reasons they might do is that they can become quite ugly the courts after a lot of use they get a lot of foot marks on them they get slide marks that kind of thing. Whereas a clay court, I guess you can brush it and that kind of thing. At the tournament, at the end of this tournament, it, it, the court will look a bit messy with foot uh, with with foot marks, and there's no real way of dealing with that because cleaning it doesn't really get those out. So mm. that's maybe why. Right. I don't know how we ended up on the technicalities of hardcore <laughs> tennis, but uh, it was it somewhere with George, where are we going to see Emma Raducanu next? Is it the Kremlin Cup? Is that where we're expecting her to go? Yeah, I think it's Moscow. Uh, you know, we, I kind of said this last week, didn't I? I thought this schedule would change if she did really well, but it, it made sense to me to book in all these tournaments because we don't know. It could go pretty badly. And now she's obviously, she could have been playing for two weeks, essentially. She's now going to have like a week and a half off before that. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of made pretty good sense to go out there um yeah i think by all accounts the conditions there will be pretty pretty fine compared to uh indoor <laughs> hard court so yeah I, I think there'll be no problem and as calvin says you know it would be no surprise to me if she just turns up there and wins that tournament but it'd also be no surprise to me if she lost i mean it's just so unpredictable at the minute yeah there, there is the follow there is literally no range of prediction. Like it, 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 all possibilities, she could pull out. She, could, you know, she could turn up there with the most road coach. Boris Becker might be her coach. Who knows? Um, <laughs> it's it just seems like a very odd, not odd situation. It's, it's as you always say, Calvin. WTA really is chaos. Yeah, I'd say there was also the comment that she made after the um, after the match as well, wasn't there about fight about her coach, which is quite. 
quite strange where she was basically advertising for a coach. Um, she's... I was going to ask you about this because she, you know, she obviously is part of the IMG empire now. She's not short of contacts within the game. Um, although goodness knows who they are because none of them talk to us as the media. But anyway, that's a whole different conversation to be had. Um, it, is that general? I mean, presumably a person in her situation, ordinarily an IMG agent would have the right contacts and would kind of go looking for the right person rather than kind of sticking a big sign up and saying, coaches apply here, please. Yeah, it, it was bizarre. I don't, I don't know what, what... I just couldn't get my head around it while she said it. But there's also this weird, like obsession with repeatedly using the word experienced and I, I don't get it it's like all the time it wasn't she she didn't say if anyone knows a good coach I'm I'm looking for one it was if anyone knows an experienced coach and I don't really understand what I said I think I said this last week maybe but I, I don't know what this idea of an experienced coach is you're either a good coach or you're not that, that that's that's the thing well, I, I would suggest Calvin that experience is usually a euphemism for old and I think you should put your hat in the ring because, frankly, if that's the only if that's the only category, I think you're right up there. Uh, you know, but, but like, I don't get like what does experience coach mean? Like knows all the best hotels at the tournament. That kind of thing. <laughs> it's like you know, and as we said, you know, you might be, you know, you might know some players. Uh, you might be able to, you know, some some weaknesses about the players. But like, that's not hard to do. And as we said, the women's tour it's so random that you don't know who you're going to be playing anyway. So I, I just don't know. I, I don't get why they're making this big thing about it has to be an experienced coach. It, when she eventually finds a coach, when she gets one, and if it's a success, it will either be because it will be because the guy is a good coach, or if it's not a success, it will be because he's a bad coach. It won't be because of experience in inverted commas. I think the thing that perplexes me a little bit about this is I don't see why she wouldn't have just extended Richardson's spell to the end of the season. Like if you've not got anyone in place straight away, it's clearly worked going away for that one trip. No, he's not going to be like, oh, you can only uh, have me permanently or not for the next six weeks. He's going to want to go out and get the tour experience. I don't get why you wouldn't do this change in the off-season and just kind of keep that going. I'll say this from experience of, of almost exactly a year ago this before she was made this made went deep into Wimbledon or won at US Open the coaching situation had been bizarre with Raducanu for for a year since she stopped working with Matt James I heard it this week last year I was in Portugal and there were tennis players who were asking us British guys what we thought of her because they'd been approached by her agent to be a coach we then heard of a auditioning British male players that the agent wanted somebody in inverted commas who who played to the level of a top 200 male player because that's what she had to have for a coach uh, and that's what he wanted and they still couldn't find anybody then so they've been trying to find a coach for a year no um, and and you know the Nigel Sears thing was only temporary he'd been he was in this kind of consultancy role and then she had like she did well at Wimbledon on that basis and then they brought in Richardson. She won the US Open and still didn't want the coach. So she didn't want the guy. She didn't want Matt James, who's taken her through the ranks from from being a junior up into work to work to the verge of the top. Well, I guess top two hundred, top two fifty. She didn't want Nigel Sears, who took her to who's probably the most experienced coach out there, who took her to uh, fourth round of Wimbledon, and she didn't want Andrew Richardson, who won a Grand Slam with her. So, <laughs> is, is this possible? What do you and want? Is, is there any kind of precedent for someone going through their career and never really having a permanent one and just 
kind of you know just bouncing in and out of people the whole time is that a thing that ever happens uh i don't know if it would be like a set way of doing it that this is what i want to do but there's certainly been players who for want of a better word have been not been able to ever get on with any coaches all the time but i don't <laughs> think it's ever happened i don't think it's ever happened like where it's been this regular like four weeks and then moving on like that kind of thing like and i'm not saying that I'm not saying this is because he was like that, but Greg Rosetsky had a lot of coaches. Like, to be fair, Murray changed coaches quite a lot in, in the early stage of his career, but they always had an idea of what they wanted. I, and this is the problem. Like, I know her agent is very involved, and whether that's a good thing or not is another matter. I'd seen uh, last week they've done a joint interview. Uh, Emma and her agent uh, have done an interview. I forget where it was. I'll have to find it. Um, I, I sent it to a mate on Twitter. Uh, and I asked my mate who works in sports management if this is normal. And he said, absolutely not. He doesn't know why the agent is doing an interview. But I don't know whether the guy's a bit like, got a bit of Ari Gold syndrome or something like that. But um... Yeah, I mean, on the kind of chopping and changing, I mean, Concha's quite a good example of someone who has been changing. She has, she's had something like six coaches in five years or something, didn't she? Um, so it's not, not that strange, I suppose. But even... Even Conza would typically stick with them for a season and see how it goes. You know, you give it a bit of time to see if it develops into a relationship. It seems at the minute, um, and perhaps this is driven by the father, um, that he or they, the team, whoever, they, they view each few months as a, uh, a step to, uh, to overcome and put it together. I mean, I'm not, I'm not totally against it conceptually, although, you know, my understanding of tennis coaching is that it's as much having someone who's a trusted companion as it is having, you know, someone to, to guide you through various things. Um, I wanted to bounce a name off you, Calvin, because it's, it's kind of been the one that's talked about quite a lot this week. It's Carlos Rodriguez, who, as we discussed last week, is Argentinian and therefore on point for uh, current British players and coaches. Um, for people who don't know his background, uh, he worked with Justina Lenarden, uh, Lina, Derny Hadjikova, Peng Shui, and most recently, Amanda Anisimova. I mean, he's won Grand Slams, multiple as a coach, uh, eight, I think, um, and a few other bits and pieces. Is he someone you know anything about? Um, he's got a great track record, obviously, with those guys. Um, I didn't know he'd worked with Anisimova, to be honest. Uh, I know he'd worked with um, Henan and Lee Na. And what I will say is he's a very wealthy man uh, from what he's done, mainly since he stopped working with Henan and Linari he ran basically ran Henan's academy, um, and then had a share in in her academy, and then they opened one in China, which was linked with what he had with Lina. So, I think from a monetary point of view, I I don't know whether he'd be interested in doing it. I don't know how much he'd cost, um, but it would be whether he has the desire and wants to get back out and and working with a player full time. I would think. I know he was living in China. Yeah, I th I think he is certainly was in it's an academy in Beijing but he um he said quite clearly that he didn't really have much desire to go out unless it was a particularly special uh project um which I suppose you might argue Raducanu is in in more ways than one um in terms of I often wonder when people say that whether what they're trying to do is you're gonna have to pay me a lot of money like if I stand up and say you know I'm I'm only really going to take a full-time job if it's really, you know, special. 
And I, I think I know what I'm saying. And I think I know what most people are saying. I, I don't, especially in sports, I don't really, and the type of people that people who work in sport are, I don't really buy this whole like, well, I'm probably just going to sit on the beach and kind of work part time unless like the dream job comes up. It's like you did the dream job. You've been doing it for years. Like it's the competitive edge, I think, more than anything else. Yeah, I think the other thing to say, it's like it doesn't really seem like there's going to be much legs in it in terms of being a long term partnership again. And, you know, maybe that maybe that's a good fit for the time being. But I, I can't imagine he'll be someone who wants to go out for the next five years solidly or, you know, build the kind of base that she's going to have for her whole career. I'd be quite surprised if it lasted more than a couple of years, really, which which is fine, you know, if that's if that's what she feels she needs right now. But I, I still don't get why you wouldn't necessarily keep someone around you know who it's working with and then bring someone in on, on top of that. They're not going to be short of funds or anything now, so... Yeah, I think that was the surprising thing when she when in her press conference that I was certain that they got someone in mind and it was just a case of sorting out the details of that. But it genuinely appears that she doesn't have anyone in mind and just just going for this experienced idea. I don't know. The other thing, what I, I, I'm going to go off topic here um, and talk about Indian Wells. I meant to say when we were talking just now about a match that I keep seeing this thing about Indian Wells, how it's got the second biggest tennis stadium in the world um, after Arthrash. And there's never anyone in there. And I, I just don't know why, why Why do they need this stadium? Like, it doesn't get used for anything else other than this week. And every match I've watched, it's definitely been no more than 20% full. So I actually, funny enough, looked at, not to try and buy tickets, but just to kind of work out when things were going on um, when I was doing stuff last week. And the only sessions that were sold out was the the final session actually not at the a single single session because the men's and women's finals are both on Sunday and that was the only one that was sold out so yeah clearly ticket selling is an issue I mean I guess to be slightly generous international travel still isn't total um, it's also like quite a rogue part of the world like you know it, it it's not super accessible even from you know the likes of LA which is at least in the same state. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that it doesn't sell huge amounts of tickets. I, I think what I guess what I'm coming back to then, and again, it's a kind of a bee in my bonnet, is that tennis needs to start selling tickets. Because like you say, James, it's not a super accessible place, but it's also a very wealthy place. So I don't imagine that um, it's a very affluent area. So I don't imagine that tickets prices are the problem. I think it, it's just people at the minute just don't want to watch tennis live. Yeah. Yeah, and I kind of, I mean, I'm happy to be tangential about it. it. It makes me think a lot about the way tennis tournaments are structured. And I, I saw um, Ben Rothenberg talking about it on Twitter months ago, but it was when Wimbledon announced they're bidding off Middle Sunday or starting to play on Middle Sunday. And when you think about it, it is insane that during Wimbledon fortnight, play only takes place on uh, up until next year, three holiday days, three non-working days. For the other 10 days of the tournament, you're expecting people to either be off work or take time off work. It's, it's A, not great for accessibility and kind of, you know, diversity, but B, it's kind of a pretty bold ticket selling strategy. Now, I know that Wimbledon's never had a problem selling tickets, but you would think that other tournaments might think, hang on, can we maybe change the way we structure this so that we can get people in more? Yeah, the other thing Wimbledon's not done, like the other standards, it's never put on like a kid's day or anything, which... It's quite odd, like strategy long term, because um, you know a lot, a lot of other 
well tennis events that uh, kids say is a huge thing because it's like getting kids from the local area or from the country that you're trying to promote the sport into the game which we all know has kind of an aging view of population um so that, that's something else they've just kind of never done but as you say the one thing they have done that has kept that thing that the most relevant sporting event that it is is uh keeping it on the bbc which is just well awesome. yeah and and for non-uk viewers bbc is one of the few free-to-air mass tv channels in the uk and the fact and, and tennis there is very little tennis on it other than wimbledon and it, it takes impact from like a million people watching it potentially if you're really lucky on a satellite broadcaster to like eight million people watching it live um on multiple days so yeah that, that's obviously a huge deal um we await further news of emma radicano's coach we await news of her agent we await really any news from Raducanu that uh, doesn't come directly from her press conferences. I just want to say one last thing regarding some of her chat, you know, after the defeat. I was really impressed um, by when she kind of said, one of the last things she said, she said, uh, you know, the the result, yeah, it sucked. Uh, I didn't like it, but, you know, I'm 18. I probably need to cut myself some slack. And I thought that was a really, like, mature way of thinking. Because it'd be very easy for her to say, I'm a US Open champion now, I've got higher standards to hold myself to. And she seems to have none of that. I think this is one of the things where, when I, when I tweeted the other day about this, I, people's obsession that she's on the verge of some breakdown or something, and we have to be really careful, is that she, she's, I, I already, I don't know, I predict very strongly that she's not that type of person. She's not, she's not on edge all the time. She's not going to be losing a nut on stuff like this. We don't need to worry in that regard, this idea that she's always having pressure on her. Like, I think, James, you, you showed us something last week where somebody was, like, kicking off because the US Open site had predicted her route to the final and, and it was seen as adding extra pressure on her. Like, <laughs> I, I, I just don't get this mentality that she's got pr- real pressure on her. I, she she yeah. won't feel it. It won't, be a, it won't be a problem. If she doesn't end up... If she, if she doesn't end up, I don't know, winning another slam or another three or four slams... It'll be because her tennis might not be good enough, and I'm not. That's not me saying it's not. It won't be because she the pressure has got to her, or because she went nuts. I mean, you say that, Calvin, but they did tweet out her run to the final, and she lost in her first match. So, who who really couldn't handle the pressure of the? Uh, I mean, yeah, I think we can only blame the U.S. Open's Instagram accounts for yeah. mapping her route to the final. Frankly, uh, also Tumani Cariol or any number of thousands of people on social media. Um, mapping out her route to the final. She was also the bookies' favourite, incidentally, and they got that wrong. Uh, I, I don't know what I don't know what these people want though. Like, are we not supposed to talk about it at all? We, oh, we... <laughs> honestly, you, you're so spot on. I think there's quite a lot of people in the world who, well, the reality is they just like complaining. But if you follow their logic, they would just like news media to be a sort of ticker tape of results that have definitely happened with no talk about what might happen in the future or the implications of what has happened, because that is either speculative or conjecturative. And it's just, it's mental. It drives me absolutely insane. Oh, what's the point in talking about it? It's already happened. It's like, what? Have you ever read a book? Oh, anyway, don't. I'm very close to losing it as it is. Um, let's move on from Emma Raducanu because maybe we, uh, we, we might lose it. Uh, Andy Murray is still in. Indian Wells, uh, one of the one of the remaining Brits. I know Dan Evans is literally playing as we speak, so I won't discuss him unless he manages to 
polish off Diego Schwartzman before the pod ends, which isn't beyond the rounds of possibility. Um, I think Murray has exceeded all our expectations thus far in Indian Wells because he's into the third round. Um, George, you're shaking your head. Were you always confident? I, I've been really impressed with him the last few weeks. I keep banging the drum in this podcast every week, but uh, he's playing comfortably the best tennis I've seen him play for since he was, uh, well, I think since he won the better, European like, Open. No, I, was, I, I think he's playing better than that, though. Like that, that week, I don't think he played particularly well. Like that final, Vavrinka hammered him for lots of it. He didn't look close to the right level. He won that that tournament a lot of the time by just being quite gritty, sticky in there and his opponents letting him off the hook a bit. Whereas I think now the way he's played the last few weeks, we saw against Sissipas, um, saw against Humber, saw it this week against Alcaraz. Like he, he's on top of a lot of these guys and like dominating a lot of points. I, I don't think he's necessarily anywhere close to, you know, coming back and having big runs at slams or whatever, but match by match now, I think the level is so much higher than it was. And, if he can just stay fit, and that's been a big if for a long time, um, I, I don't see why he can't start making runs in these events because guys like Rafa and Novak aren't going to be turning up to them all the time. That's one big obstacle out of the way. I, I, I still think he can mix it in these this sort of level event and go pretty far. It's Zverev next, isn't it? I mean, that, that's going to be a pretty tough test because Zverev's stepped up a notch since he beat him uh, before the US Open last year. Um, so that, that'll be a good indicator again, but he, he was really good against Alcaraz in the bits I saw. And I do think this is not a terrible matchup for him generally, um, just in terms of game style and that sort of thing. Um, partly because Zverev is a guy who beats himself semi-regularly, uh, albeit, as you say, George, less less than previously. But um, it's worth talking because did that match may have happened by the time many of you listen to this. It's worth talking about the matches he has won. Um, they beat Adrian Manorino 3-2 and two in the first round. I don't think any of us were that surprised by that. Um, I was kind of despairing at a few tweets about, you know, tweets of videos of Andy Murray. How does he get them all back? I'm like, it's because he's playing Adrian Manorino. I think I can get a few of these. There's not, there's not a huge amount on the ball, put it that way, um, with the greatest respect to Adrian. Um, but he then did walk into... Are you going to defend Adrian Manorino, George? No, no, no. I was just going to say, on that, on that exact point, I think one of you sent a clip earlier of... Um a point where Alcaraz like hit a, a sort of half I don't know what he was going for whether it was a smash or a drop shot but Murray was like the simplest thing to chase down the commentator's like how did Andy Murray get there it's like I don't bloody got there easily what are you talking there's about a, landed on the there's line <laughs> there's a certain amount of like um, autopilot going on where they just see Andy Murray and they see him make a shot and they just sort of like access the Andy Murray line about chasing down a ball Um yeah, he, he, he played Carlos Alcaraz in the second round, who, uh, if you're a long-time listener of the podcast, you will know he's a guy we all think is going to win multiple Grand Slams. Um, he was number 30 seed and Murray a wild card, which I think, you know, less than two years ago or three years ago would have been the, the other way around. Um, but yeah, Murray came from a set down. He, he did, in fairness, battle pretty hard against a very uh, talented guy, uh, albeit not one who can volley, as he demonstrated in that point. Um, with one of the worst overheads and then just a shocking backhand volley uh, to lose the point. Uh, Calvin, uh, from, from what you've managed to see of, of Murray beating Alcaraz, I mean, even just on paper, it's a good result, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, just quickly back to Manorino to back your point up there, James, that if anyone knows um, how racket stringing works, that 
the, the looser you have your strings, the harder, the, the faster the ball comes off them. Um, Manorino is, has his racket strung the lowest of anyone in the top 200. <laughs> and not just lowest, he has them strung 10, I think something like 12 kilograms lower than anyone else. So it basically just bunts the ball around and, that, and the ball has to fly off them. Um, in terms of Alcaraz, um, yeah, it was a really interesting match, I think, tactically, um, how he played it. And he basically starved him of any forehands whatsoever um, and hit most things deep down the middle. So Alcaraz, we know it's huge. He had to hit the ball through through Murray through the middle. And I still think Murray is basically impossible to do that. You can just keep keep that ball coming back deep. And he frustrated him. And I think what was interesting is that he started really well. Um, he went three love up, 40 love, love, love 40 up for four love. And then from that point, there was about an hour, maybe, where he, Murray was lucky, not lucky, but he seemed like he was hanging in there every time. Alcaraz was holding serve easy. Murray was having to chase balls. He was holding like three juices every service game. And I thought hey, this, he's not going to hold on to this for much longer, but he just kept going the same way. And Alcaraz eventually broke down. He, he just went to bits, um, which he didn't expect. And, so I think one of the commentators said he started playing the, um, I think Petchy said it, he started playing Murray's reputation rather than Murray. Um, and I think that affected Alcaraz. And it still shows that Murray does still have that. Um, and especially for that age, there was a stat in it, and I didn't know it until yesterday, where they said that Murray has only lost to a teenager four times in his career. Um, wow. He lost to Bona Koric in the 2015 and the other three were in 2006. I think he lost to Djokovic twice and Monfils once. But that what we also tell there is that Murray was also a teenager yeah. at, that, at that age. So I don't think that really counts. So since he came out of being a teenager himself, he hasn't lost to another teenager in 15 mm. years. And I suppose that really is testament to his kind of tactical ability and, and ability to play on a weakness and just kind of, yeah. you know, keep prodding at it. It's interesting though you mentioned that hour where he was kind of hanging on, you know, like like a boxer who's just hanging on, like Deontay Wilder uh, in the latter <laughs> stages of his fight. I'm sorry if I've spoiled that for anyone who hasn't watched it by now, but you have had two days. Um, he, he, what's that? That seems to be happening kind of quite regularly in this latter year of his career or whatever. Do we do we have an idea of what that's indicative of? Is it just, you know, not not being able to maintain the level for whatever reason? It's how he plays. I mean, I think that's the thing. He's, and he's always been like that. You know, it's like Murray has never been one of these guys who's who who has won matches easy. That's one of the things what what worried me when he came back with the hip is he's never really, if you look through his career, he, he gets himself involved in these ridiculous matches. And that's kind of what his reputation depends upon because he wins these matches out of no, out of nothing when he shouldn't win them. I remember once he was somehow found one US Open, he found himself two sets to love down to Manorino as it happens. And that is in itself is absolutely ludicrous that Manorino is <laughs> winning sets against Andy Murray. But um, a little anecdote about him, actually. I don't want to give names away here, but um, a few weeks ago, he messaged um, a player who I know uh, saying that, I think he lost him, actually. He said he had, to, he was got, Murray said he was going to have to change the way that he played. He, he realised that and he wasn't going to stress about results too much for the, for the next few weeks um, and, and focus on just being more aggressive, changing the way that he plays. And then literally the next day, Murray had won a match. I think it was probably in um, 
when he made this when he lost to uh, when he beat lost to Hercatch a few weeks ago. Yeah, can't remember where that In was. France, yeah, um, yeah um, he won that. He, he won the match before that, and then in the, this was two days after he spoke to the person I know, and then. In his press conference after, Murray had said he doesn't care about how he plays as long as he wins. <laughs> <laughs> and then so the lad I know has messaged him, go what and, and on WhatsApp done the reply to the original message and gone like, what happened to this? And he's just replied with, "That's the difference between me and you. I'm a winner." <laughs> <laughs> um, so that lasted 24 hours that he was going to have to change the way that he played. Um, but I, I do. I still do think if he's going to get back to the top twenty in the world, I still think he is going to have to be more aggressive. Just he can win matches. He can, I think he can beat almost anybody in the world doing what he did yesterday. Because Alcaraz is up there with. If we do an actual sort of ranking, you say Alcaraz is probably one of the fifteen best players in the world at the minute, and he can beat it. I just don't think you can't go through tournaments doing it. You can't even without a metal hip. I mean, Djokovic does. He's a bit of an anomaly, but he's thirty-six years old. Is Murray like so? So, how's he going to be able to do it? I suppose we should also talk about. Although I note that a lot of people on Twitter have muted the words "underarm" and "serve" and anything relating to it. Uh, Andy's underarm ace against Carlos Alcaraz. It was um, an unusual one because it wasn't necessary that Alcaraz was very, very deep. It was just that he wasn't really looking, although he was quite deep, but uh, it, it made me laugh. George, where does this rank? I know you're a big underarm serve fan. Where does this rank in terms of other underarm serves on the scale of zero to Kyrgios? Oh, it was a very good one. Um, had good, like, side slice, uh, kept nice and short. But I think I think the reason it ranks very highly is the complete unexpectedness. I, I can't remember him ever doing it before. And so maybe he'll never do it again for another 10 years or something, but, you know, Alcaraz couldn't possibly predict he's going to lob that in because it's just very un-Murray, I suppose. Um, he says he'll maybe consider doing it again. I think he said he was considering doing it a few more times in the third set just to try and catch him out a bit more, but he kind of decided against it. Um, yeah, it was very impressive. I'm a fan. Yeah, you only get one go at that, I think, unless, you, unless you've actually got a massive serve which obviously Murray, God bless him, doesn't. Um, and your opponent is standing like, you know, 30 feet behind the baseline. You can only really get away with it once. Um, I don't think we're going to do the sort of hand-wringing and moral kind of toing and throwing about underarm serves. I think we all think it's the thing you can do if you want to do it. And, you know, it's not really, it's not exactly going to blight the game. And I'm sure that the video of the uh, underarm serve did many more views than almost anything else on Twitter. If anything, I consider it a moral action, James. <laughs> An extremely ethical shot, if if nothing else. Um, let's move on. Um, Andy is in action, as I mentioned, against Alexander Zverev in the third round. You may already have uh, have seen it or or heard the result by now. Um, so we wish him the best. And uh, I'm I will mention the fact because if you're not on Twitter, you may not have seen that. Um, Andy did lose his wedding ring this week uh, by leaving his sweaty and smelly shoes under his car to dry out uh, rather than in his car because it would have smelled horrendous uh, and they were subsequently stolen with his ring tied into the shoelaces uh, and then returned rather miraculously Calvin why do we keep having to talk about Andy Murray's shoes it sounds like he doesn't have enough pairs of shoes 
it's, well, it's bizarre, isn't it? I don't, I have no idea what's going on with his shoes, but um, I was told that he had three pairs. Um, Is that he, enough? For a week, probably, yeah. Um, because what, and it was interesting yesterday, Petch said this, and he's always always the same. I have the same belief as, as Murray on this. He doesn't like playing in brand new shoes on a hard court uh, because of the, as, as I spoke about earlier, the sand in the court, they get gritty and brand new shoes have, have a lot of grip, obviously, as well. And, it, and it's a bit unnatural. You stop too early. You can't slide on, on, on the courts with that kind of thing. So I always prefer when I, when I was playing to a moderately lower level than what Andy Murray uh, plays now. <laughs> um, when I was playing, I, I would I preferred shoes with no grip. I would play with them to the point where just before they had a hole in them. That's right. what I wanted because you, you feel more, they've got more in them. So basically he had, he took three pairs of shoes, two pair of brand new ones and one that was used already. Um, in training, the one that was used already apparently went. So then he had two pairs of shoes and he left. They didn't really say this anywhere in the, in the, in the comments, but apparently he left both pair of shoes under the car. So he had, he had two pair of shoes stolen. Um, but and was yeah, no I, shoes at all. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes back to that. Yeah, you're asking, is three pairs enough? Probably for, I mean, I guess he was there for two weeks. Probably, yeah, for two weeks, not a problem. But I don't get why you wouldn't just take five pairs of shoes. <laughs> anyway, like, it really worth the risk. It, it, it's yeah, like yeah. having, you know, it's like having three rackets in your bag. You, you're not likely to break two strings and three strings in a match. Especially but, when you know it's going to be roasting hot and the chances yeah. are... Like your shoes from the day before might not be like, and you've also just had quite a public spat about your shoes in New York and how yeah. much you're sweating through them. Anyway, I, I suppose that's probably all we need to devote to uh, to Andy Murray's trainers, but it was uh, worth mentioning if you haven't already seen the story. Um, th- there's been a sort of significant development elsewhere in the world of tennis um, with Nick Kyrgios. Uh, he, he, I mean, George, why don't you give us the lowdown on this story? As far as I understand it, he was separated from his girlfriend in quarantine. Yes. So <clears throat> the official line in terms of what the police have said is that they were taken apart after a report of loud shouting and commotion in quarantine, and they'll now spend quarantine separately. And it does, in fairness say within that that no offences were reported so that that's the official police line on it that's that's point number one um but they were but they did attend which is something you can report yeah now what has then followed is uh accusations from uh chiara i always forget her surname it's something like passiari or something um yeah that's about it right yeah passari passari there we go um, now, obviously, the most troublesome one was saying, kind of comparing him to Zverev, and I think she was asked something along the lines of, "What would Nick think of uh, the Zverev allegations?" And she said something like, "Oh, well, he probably is fine with it because he's very similar, something along those lines." And then she's obviously previously shared some stuff on Instagram about domestic abuse, and she referenced those comments. Um, and accusations of cheating and whatever. Um, so, yeah, not exactly the story tennis needs right now. Um, 
but I, I do also have to say that on the incident of the hotel room, as I say, the police position was there were no offences reported. So, you know, that is different ground on, on that front, but obviously not a good look again for um, another ATP star to be, well, even hinted is too much, I suppose, on domestic abuse issues at the moment. Yeah, I mean, that's the kind of um, ballpark we're discussing here. And and yeah, as you say, George, it's important to stress that no no offences have been reported and that he's not under investigation, whether by the police or anyone else um, at present. Uh, as for his relationship status, unclear, I would suggest, although given that she's now been posting pictures of him in bed with someone else, I would suggest that perhaps the on-again, off-again relationship is currently off-again. Um, I think anyone who's been around the tour and... I know that we've we've heard stories and seen firsthand evidence of that relationship being quite a rocky one. I think I don't really want to talk about it too much because it's quite hard to do it without libeling anyone. But I think what is clear is that th these players often find themselves going all the way around the world with the same people or different people, and it puts huge stresses on relationships. I'm not excusing anything. What I'm saying is these are not isolated incidents of relationship breakdown you know, whether it be just breakups or much worse. And that, if anything, it reinforces the need for the ATP to have policies and protocols and, and prevention techniques in place to kind of recognise that this happens and that, you know, there is potential for, for really bad stuff, for want of a better phrase, to happen. I'm telling myself not to try not to libel anyone here. But I think that's. I think we both were. <laughs> both were around the houses. I mean, it's fine. It's in Australia. He'll never hear it. I don't know. Maybe the lawyers are big listeners. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> I can't afford a lawsuit. Uh, Riley Apelka. I don't think he's going to sue us, uh, mainly because he seems unliable, if you ask me. He gave one of the more unusual interviews uh, on the tennis circuit. I mean, Riley Apelka, in fairness, has had an unusual summer. Uh, he is, of course, I believe, the tallest player ever to play on the tour. Um, he has coined himself a serve bot, so we are allowed to call him that now. It's not an insult. He said it. Um, he got fined at the US Open, I believe, for carrying an unlicensed bag onto the court with a sort of handwritten slogan on it. I can't remember what the slogan was. It wasn't anything important. Um, he was just fined for kind of, you know, unpermitted uh, wear. It was very odd. Uh, he's had lots of chat about team serve bot. He says he doesn't think Nick Kyrgios should be in Team Serve because he's too interesting. And then, George, he gave this interview to, um, I mean, Inside Tennis, I believe, Bill Simmons, who's obviously reasonably reputable. Um, what were your highlights? Oh, I don't know. There's too many to choose from. I just found, like, the entire thing so bizarre. Like, it was, first of all, I would say it was a really enjoyable read and it's good when tennis players even if they're saying odd things, like are just kind of themselves. Um, and I, I, I don't want to kind of quash that side of things at all because it it was a, a, a first tennis interview for a while I've read and just thought, wow, this is really funny. Just someone kind of unfiltered of it. But there was just <clears throat> some really strange moments. I mean, there was one question that I think he's asked, oh, you're, you're like one of the most athletic, tall men ever. It's almost like, it's a bizarre question, but it's always like, you're kind of like poetic when you move. I'm like, we watch the same guy here? What are you talking about? All right. Um, <laughs> but he somehow, he like has one sentence to answer and he goes, but I hate the tennis media. <laughs> they all need taking down. It was like, that seemed, he, it seemed like he wanted to give an interview to take down the tennis media in his own way. 
Um, on a more serious note, the, the other really odd suggestion he had, um, beside the fact that if he didn't play tennis, he would just spend a lot of time listening to John Isner, which I think is a worrying start point for anyone, um, <laughs> is that he wants to get rid of mixed doubles. And I just don't, I don't get that. He's like, oh, no one ever goes to watch a mixed doubles match. It's really bad for the sport. I'm sitting there thinking, nobody ever goes to watch a rally on poker match. It's really bad for the sport. Like, I mean, I've often said, George, I, I've been in favour of banning John Isner from tennis for some years, and rally poker is dangerously close to that level. I mean, his, his point, I'm just going to read the quote he says about mixed doubles. Um we have a journalist saying mixed doubles is not in the French Open this year. That's what makes the slam a slam. This is all Riley. Like, really, is that a joke? There shouldn't even be mixed doubles. They should get rid of it completely. It doesn't sell ticket. No one cares about it. No one watches it or wants to be there. Just get rid of it and throw all that money into the men's and women's qualifying. Now, in terms of actual, like, things to do with the money that goes to mixed doubles, not a terrible idea in terms of, like, redistributing prize money through the tennis pyramid. Fine. But the idea that mixed doubles doesn't sell tickets is like demonstrably not true. You know, it's, it's, I mean, maybe I'm just speaking from Wimbledon experience. It's something that people really enjoy and hang around for. And like, okay, the mixed doubles final after the final is not, not a good example, but people do seek it out and I think really enjoy it. Um, um, I, I think the thing I'll say on it is that I don't, I don't agree with him and I don't disagree with him on the mixed doubles thing. Like one thing I'll say is that in terms of prize money, it's not a great deal to be fair. I I think if you win it, I think it's like three grand a person or something like that for, for, for winning it. Um, It's not loads. So I don't think that would make any difference. And let's be honest, right. uh, First round prize money in slams is not the issue with um, prize money in tennis in general. It's it's 50 grand if you lose first round, which Mm. is not bad in anyone's book. So they don't need to be doing that. The only thing I'll say on mixed and, and what mixed doubles also does, and doubles as well for this regard, is is it keeps the outdoor out um, the outside courts going um, long into the in the tournament, which you wouldn't be able to do if you'd get to the sort of quarterfinal stage. I think at Wimbledon is Wednesday or Thursday. Um, Tuesday. And then, yeah, and then if, if you can run all the matches on, if you didn't have double, if you didn't have mixed doubles, you didn't have doubles. You can run all the matches on one court. You wouldn't mm. need anything else. Um, but what I will say is that mixed doubles, if you don't have a big name playing in it, which you don't anymore, really, and if you don't have anyone local playing in it, then there's not a great deal of interest in it if you've if you just got four random doubles players playing mixed doubles. I think Wimbledon might, over the last couple of years, it might be in, been a bit of a misnomer because we've had Brits who've done well in it. So I think that can that may make it seem more interesting than it is. But uh, on the flip side with the Pelker, I thought the interview was great. Again, like I don't agree with everything he says by any regard, but we don't have to, do we? Just, it's good to watch somebody just actually speaking and not trying, not thinking and, and appearing media trained in everything that they said. I think the, the points you've made about mixed doubles, I kind of agree with. I think the way I'd look at it differently to a Pelker though is that Mixed doubles is shown many times that when you get the big stars playing with each other, it's such a brilliantly marketable thing for tennis that goes so huge. Like you just have to look at Serena and Roger at the Hotman Cup, Serena playing with Murray at Curious Curious and Venus this year. Curious and Venus, exactly. Like when you pair up those big players, it's a it's a really great product and is something that 
so few sports can do. I mean, it's just impossible to do in football, for example, to have like Lucy Bronze playing alongside Jack Grealish or whatever to pick England's two best players. Um, but <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> Not true on either level. Um, but like, you know, the, the issue with mixed doubles and where you're kind of right is that and where Calvin's just touched on is that those matches aren't happening often enough. And my obvious solution to that, which we spoke about the other week, was get that in the Labour Cup. That that's the obvious format to start doing that straight away. A weekend where you're chucking in men's, women's singles and the mix together. That that's like an easy open goal. And if you do that, then Team World don't have to pick Riley Apelka. You can take Naomi Osaka, which might be a bit of an upgrade uh, for their <laughs> I mean, there's also there's also grounds for looking at, you know, and I was talking about this earlier in the pod, about formats of tournaments and tour tournaments. And, you know, if you said, right, we're going to run a mixed doubles tournament Friday, Saturday, Sunday, entry closes Friday morning. So if you bomb out the tournament and you don't want to bugger off somewhere else in the world, and we'll stick a bit of money in it, and you might actually get some crowds in for it. It would pad out the actual bits that people turn up to watch, and you might get some of the decent players. I don't know. I imagine most players would sack it off. I don't really know how you make players play tennis other than by paying them more money. But I don't know. There's a conversation to be had, and it doesn't start with, we should just sack off mixed doubles. There are a lot of problems in tennis. I don't think that is one of them. I, th- I think the problem with that, and I, I, I can't ever see really many more stars playing it because sports science is such a big thing now and there's sort of obsession with rest and trying to play as little as possible that their, their physios and their um, fitness trainers would just never sign off on adding an extra, extra hour and a half every day onto their schedule. Yeah, and again, that's why I think the Labour Cup's the obvious answer because they've signed up to essentially this pointless exhibition, a lot of them, for a lot of money, and they're trying to create something by lobbing in mixed doubles in there. It will definitely make it more competitive, and they've already scheduled that time to do it, and it's fairly, like, not too taxing on the body, just one weekend. It's kind of... It's just like, I I can't believe we're having this conversation. It's like the mixed doubles circuit is just... Is we have, I think we have the exact right amount of mixed doubles when slams work perfectly fine. I like, I don't think anyone really argues with that except Riley Opelka. Did, did someone turn him down? Like, did he get turned down for a big mixed doubles match or something? Is he is he bitter? I can only assume that's it. Just- I, I think as a rule, and I think we've seen this before with with Dan Evans who said it that. The and it's not specifically to mixed doubles. I think it's doubles in general. Is the singles players have a have a gripe about doubles players, and I think like kind of what they've got their eyes on as a whole is that whole doubles money prize pot. So I don't think it's specifically mixed doubles they have an issue with. It's it's doubles. Once you get to a certain level and can start going deeper into the tournaments, um, it's a case of why are these people who are not as good at tennis as we are getting some of money that we could have. Final point I want to make is that also stuff like Vickers Doubles can occasionally produce random, like, good uh, spicy stories, like when Jay Clark sacked off Harriet Dart to play with Coco Golf. That sort of thing we need more of. Like, I love that sort of story. So, yeah. Go on. Yeah, couldn't, couldn't agree more. And speaking of hilarious tennis stories, uh, you will know that Calvin was calling in from Prague last weekend. And um, things got a bit fiery on court at one point. So basically what happened is um, this guy, Tobias Simon, who's a German guy, he's playing a guy called Ignatic, 
Ignatics won the first set and Simon served for the second set of 5-4. Now, I didn't see the actual point, so I don't know whether it was in or out, but um, he was game point up, uh, set point up in that. And he's, he's, he's had his ball called out and he's just gone nuts at the umpire. Like he says, it's like, how has he missed it? And he's screaming, he's going like, I can't believe you've not seen this. There's like set point. And you've just cost me the set point. I can't believe that, that, you know, he's kicking off and then he starts going to me. You know, the worst part is if I don't win this tournament, you make more money than me. You make more money than I do this week unless I win the tournament. You're a fucking disgrace. <laughs> You're a fucking disgrace. And the guy, the umpire's gone, uh, that's a warning. And he's gone, yeah, that's all you can ever do. Warning. That's easy to do. Warnings are easy, but you can't even call any lines. You can't even see the balls. <laughs> Anyway, it's gone on. It's, we're cracking up on the next. So that's juice, right? Juice. On the next point, they've got they've obviously got the umpire and one line judge who does the serve thing, and so he's served, and then the guy's gone to move, like he's gone to move to the other line as they sometimes do at midpoint because they do the middle service line, then they move over to the far sideline. And he's like, the, 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 the line judge has had like a brain freeze and he gets stuck and he's just like shuffling one way or the other. And like, he's lost the point. And he's going like, what, where are you going? And he's going, oh, sorry. And he's going like, there's no need apologizing. You're moving behind the ball in the middle of the point. And he's lost it. So it's break point down now, 5-4 from that. And we're like cracking up. Like Luke and his partner are playing doubles and the other two pair, the other pair are just cracking up like smirking. And then we've all stopped to like watch what's going on in this point. So he served, the guy's blocked it back. Um, and he's come in with a slice approach. And the guy's gone, the opponent's gone for backhand line pass. And Simon, who's a really tall guy, has covered the pass. His racket's there. And the ball's hit the net cord and gone over the top of his racket for the break. <laughs> and he's just gone absolutely ballistic, like nuclear stuff. The racket's gone. He's gone absolutely nuts. And to be fair, the umpire's given him a bit of like leeway because like he could have given him a point penalty um, for that. I might even be able to disqualify him, to be honest. Um, but uh, he's ended up coming back and winning the match. But... Um, yeah, but after all that, uh, I mean, he might well have been right, because after all that, during uh, Luke's doubles match, um, early on in the second set was maybe the worst line call I've ever seen. Um, Luke and his partner were both at the net. One of the other pairs has just absolutely leathered the ball down the middle of them, and it's gone about. I was stood, on a, I was stood in line with the baseline, and it's gone, I'm going to say, without exaggerating, it's gone half a metre long. And the umpire's just gone, it was too fast for me, I couldn't see it, so I'm going to call it in. <laughs> like, unbelievable. Now, if you want to, and I will post the timestamp on Twitter, you can go and find this on the YouTube live stream of the court. Um, it's, it's worth a little bit of your time, I would suggest. Uh, Calvin, I mean, you've seen a lot of rants on court. I mean, what made this one quite so special? It was the combination of like how it just kept getting worse and worse um, from the initial call, which I when it was going on, I was two courts away. So I was, Luke, who I coach, was playing doubles at the same time as it on the next court on. Um, and in, in the middle of it, 
the mic on the on the video, if anyone watches it, you can't really pick up the full conversation. But the guy was going so nuts that he was affecting play on the next call. So the umpire in our match just said to him, uh, "I think all he said was like, please." And the guy and, and um, Tobias Simon, who was, who was doing his nothing, just looked at him for two minutes. Just goes, "What?" <laughs> and the goes, "We can't. Uh, you're holding our game up." But he just goes like, "Well." effing start playing then <laughs> I don't think that picks it up but I mean it, it starts with and I've, I didn't know it when it happened because obviously I couldn't see it. when I watched the replay on the video the call is terrible it's an yeah. absolutely horrendous call and it's not that hard a call to make because it comes off a net cord so it slows all the pace out of it and you mm. can see on the video that the ball's well inside the line um is, but, is there any chance that Tobias Simon is going to be playing at a big tournament near you soon? Because he sounds box office. Um, I doubt it. I think he's already 31. Uh, <laughs> and like, Are you writing off people at the age of 31, Calvin? Because as someone um, soon to turn 31, I don't like that. He's a, he's a really strange player, if anyone's seen him. He's, he's really tall and hits the ball really soft, um, but just gets to the net at any occasion and he's so lanky and so his arms are so long that you just can't pass him so he's a real problem for anyone but yeah it, it was um it was it was nuts how it was the call and then the guy moving in in the the voice note that, that you've just listened i got the scores slightly wrong i, I wasn't watching the match entirely but uh, the 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 line judge moving in the middle of the point. And then during that point as well, he comes to the net and the other guy passes him and, and he's got the volley covered and it hits the net cord and goes over his racket. And I, I remember when it happened, like I just, when the, when that happened and the net cord goes over his racket, I said to myself like, Oh no, because <laughs> you knew what was coming. It was a man on the edge, and, and if anything was going to tip it, that was it. And The only yeah. thing I can compare that to is when you're playing golf with someone and things are going badly for them and, like, you know, a putt lips out and it's no yeah. one's fault and you, you just you just go, all oh, right, here we go. Something's going to get broken here. And that's that yeah. exact same feeling of inevitable rage. Yeah, and, and, and it was a, it was a little pause, and then he just goes screams, and he ended up winning the match. That was the <laughs> <laughs> he ended up winning the tie break, and then winning the match. Um, so yeah, phenomenal stuff. All the fun of the fair. So it's been um, a busy summer for Luke. Eh? Uh, he played. I think he was saying he's played eight weeks in a row of tournaments now. So, uh, yeah. so is he um, going to keep? Is he going to keep um, keep grinding, or has he got a trip home planned? Or um, he can't because um, as the wonderful Brexit has put him in a position, he has to come home for about three weeks because he's had, he's done his ninety days in one hundred and eighty um, in Europe that you can do. So he can't actually. So play I'm not. I wasn't aware of this. So what? It's basically a visa stipulation. Yeah, you've got to. Um, you can only play. You can only go into Europe for 90 out of any 180 day period. So uh, he's had to come home for another two weeks and then I think it resets. Um, That's absolutely wild. Yeah, it's nuts. I mean, like, I don't know if, we don't know if there is some way around it. You can apply for visas and pay for them and go through everything, but it, you just can't be doing that, especially to go to different countries. You have to apply to each different country. And, and, and it has to be, it's not a formality that it would be accepted either. Um, right. So 
Yeah, it's basically a few players. I think it's getting to that stage now of the year where it's affecting a few players and they're, they're having to come home because of it. Um, especially seeing as there aren't many tournaments in Britain or we've not had, we've not had any this year. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Wild. Well, um, yes, yet another unintended consequence of Brexit. Who could have seen any of them coming? Um, yeah. I think that's uh, all we've uh, got time for this week. As always, please do make sure to leave us a rating and a review. It really does make a difference, especially if you're new to the podcast. If you've enjoyed the last couple of weeks, we'd love it if you gave us a rating or a review. Follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod. And thanks, as always, for listening. Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.